these are animals. They're, they're subhuman primates. They're in a chat room. They come to my show to undermine my authority to pass notes and chew gum. Do not pay any attention to the chat room. Thomas Frank joins us. He is the author of What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. Listen Liberal, or whatever happened to the party of the people, in his latest The People Know a Brief History of Anti-Populism. Go buy The People Know a Brief History of Anti-Populism. I'm in the middle of it. I told you I wasn't going to gush, so I'm going to blame you, Thomas Frank, because a lot of the animals in the chat room are sick. They hate me. They, they come specifically to hate on me. They are tired of my constantly saying we have to break up big Harvard. That did you say big, did you say big Harvard? Yes, that that the solution to America's problems is the Justice Department coming in and breaking up big Harvard, destroying the endowment, creating a hundred little Harvards throughout throughout the country, that going to Harvard is a youthful indiscretion and it is a reason not to hire somebody. Now, my audience is do, do sick I of... Do I take it I'm speaking to a Harvard alum? No, no, my audience oh, well, is sick of... That's the only kind of person you hear that, that, that sort of thing from. Blame this man. Listen, liberal. <laughs> it's your fault my show is horrible. It's your fault. <laughs> Listen, liberal. Well, I, that's, I, I've never heard it expressed that way before. Break up Big Harvard. I kind of like the idea. Yeah, but it is your fault, right? And I mean, so. I, I am. I, I will take the blame for, um, yes, for, for a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> I, I would rather, I'd like to know what, I, what I'm accepting the blame for specifically before that, we I, I don't actually fasten it on my narrow shoulders. Well, I don't think. When you read that Stacey Abrams went to Harvard Law, that's not a plus. When you read that, yeah, that's right. You're, you're, yeah, that's uh, guilty. That's me. That's your fault. Yeah. And that the Obamas, but I did, I did that sort of thing too. You know, I went through the meritocracy machine. I, I played my, I did my best, Uh, and that's that's why I write about it in the way that I do because I saw it from the the inside and was got personally acquainted with its failings. In my case, it was the University of Chicago. Yes, um, yes. The, the Straussians, the people who gave us the yeah, shock doctrine. Yeah. And they must be doing really well. As a well. matter of fact, yes. But I didn't study, I wasn't in that department. I was uh, in a different one. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I saw the, the, the meritocratic machine from the inside and, and learned. And, and, but there, there was an ironic thing, an ironic side to it as well that I'm sure you are familiar with in your and the people in your chat room are familiar with, which they're is, not people. Stop calling them people. That only encourages them. <laughs> that, that when you like, let's say you get a PhD in history, like I did, or in um, literature, or in you know, like um, German language, or something like that. Uh, you you basically um, you you get to go be an adjunct. You know what this is? It's uh, you, you get to work for years and years and years for very, very, very little. And I mean, the, the university system is is a uh, it's a crock in so many ways. But one of the more amusing it's not amusing at all. It's horrible. One of the one of the the, 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 the ways in which it's just so abusive is what it does to its own truest believers. You know, they're ruined. They're ruined. They they cranked out so many. Well, we'll talk about that some other time. Yes. Yes. Anyway, let's talk about populism, because this is mind boggling that the Democratic Party has purposely dropped the ball. It's the Democratic Party's fault. It's not the Republican Party's fault that the word populism has been mangled. And you cover this. As I look back at your three books that I've read, What's the Matter with Kansas, Listen Liberal, and I'm in the middle of the people know a brief history of anti-populism. In what's the matter with Kansas? It's how the Republicans hoodwink us. Listen, liberal is how the Democrats hoodwink us. And 
this is, I think, your last book about politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're saying, no, well, we've come on. We- it's, it's, it's got to be. You, you've read it. It's like, <laughs> what more do you need to be told, Where do America? You go after this, right? Where, what do you do after you write something like this? How it's like you. There is a unifying theory to your work. It's it's very clear. It's let everybody vote and stop relying on these experts who don't really care about you and they're not so smart. Yeah, both of those, all of those things are true. Yeah, and it's, I would add a little, a little more to that, that ever since the 80s, we have been on this incredible tear, uh, economic tear, uh, by the way, largely engineered by the professional economists, um, you know, in, in this case, acting through the Republican Party. And, uh, but it's been, totally facilitated by the Democratic Party. I, by the way, I've been thinking a lot about how I got into journalism these days, and it was in the 80s. And I kept expecting back in those days for the Democrats to come along and reverse Reaganism. You know, that's what I, that's right. what I thought. Right, it's cyclical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And instead, it's, it's permanent. It's right. permanent. And both, both parties are, are like have their roles to play in this complete, uh, sort of realignment of 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 how our how our how our country works. Yeah, it's, I, yeah. it stinks. Arthur it stinks. Schlesinger's "The Cycles of American History," and I'm thinking, is this measured in geologic yeah, time I here? I, what I, do we? Way, I, I admired that guy. I liked that guy a lot, and uh, uh, his biography of Roosevelt is excellent. But uh, that's the cycles of American history. <laughs> well, it didn't happen this time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the, the people know a brief history of anti-populism, and I promise you I wouldn't gush. So I'm, I'm not going to gush about having you on the show. Populism, it's been mangled. There is yeah. an actual definition of the word yeah. populism, even though there's no major source material like Das Kapital or Edmund Burke. or. Well, there is. You just got to... You gotta, you got to dig, you know, uh, you it, no, but you're, you're right. They, they're, they're mani- They did have a manifesto. It's largely forgotten. They did produce a lot of literature. Uh, none of it is considered classic, uh, that I know of. You write uh, that it's they, dry. Yeah, it's extremely dry. And they're, and they had a tendency towards, um, uh, shrillness, which was common in like reform circles in the 18, in the, in the 19th century. A lot of these guys came out of abolitionism. And they thought that populism was the next step uh, towards social reform. So populism, for, for your, for your uh, listeners who don't know, was a late 19th century. This is the people who made up the word, by the way. It's not just a word that comes down to us and we can use it to describe any old thing. It was, it was a word that was consciously invented to describe a third-party movement in the 1890s, a left-wing reform group. It would have been the American equivalent of like the Labor Party in England or the Social Democrats in Germany. It, it happened at about the same time, tried to enlist the same sort of people, but it was not Marxist. Uh, it was it was Jeffersonian. It saw it, you know, it saw itself as the next step in uh, the natural progression of democratic reform. And uh, it, it uh, and that's that's where the word comes from. And for about 50 years, that's all the word referred to. It was it was spelled with an uppercase P and it only referred to this movement back in the 1890s. And then it, the word got flipped. And we'll talk about that later. I don't want to get ahead of the story. here yeah. because the, the, the story of populism itself is actually a lot of fun. You write that it started in Kansas. The, the political side of it did it. It started actually earlier as a farmer movement. Uh, and this is one of the things that we always forget about American politics is that so much of it is not about leaders and not about parties. It's about mass movements of ordinary people. That is how real change gets made in this country. And there was this gigantic movement of farmers in the 1880s called the Farmers Alliance. It was like a farmers union. And they tried to, farmers were in deep, deep trouble in those days for a, a bunch of different reasons. And these guys tried to, they tried uh, to uh, solve their problems with direct action. They would get together, form a cooperative, uh, you know, try to cut out the middleman, try to sell their products directly so that they couldn't get ripped off by the railroads. They couldn't get ripped off by the banks, but nothing worked. And finally, they uh, realized it was also an educational movement. The idea was for these people living out on the prairie to, um, 
read books, uh, read pamphlets, go to sort of these Chautauqua like events where they'd go out and, you know, in a, in a pasture somewhere and listen to speakers from back East who would come out and, and tell them about how banking worked. And that, anyhow, it, they weren't able to overcome their problems by themselves. So they went into politics was there a religious component? Chautauqua has a religious component to it. So the abolitionists, there were... Re- Some of them were religious, but so in a movement like this, you had people from all different uh, religious backgrounds. It had a very kind of evangelical style, but it was not overtly religious. Uh, you, you couldn't be by this point. I mean, there were so many... This is the, also the period of great um, migration into America. So there's people from all these different... Uh, European countries in places like Kansas and Texas and all over the Midwest, and you've got to be able to appeal to them. And there's also a lot of of atheists. These people were admirers of Robert Ingersoll uh, and people like that. And so they're uh, they called them free thinkers, infidels. They would you know the town infidel. Every town in Kansas had a town infidel. Right. That person would always be a populist, you know. Mm-hmm. And so so they had they had an evangelical style, but 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 they tried to keep the religious component of it down. Is Anyhow, the analog the, as I was reading your book, the analog feels like the Occupy movement in that there was no discernible leadership. You say it was a movement as opposed to... Yes. That, so this is a really important point. They did have they did have leaders, but they realized something. I was you, I usually save this for the end because the contrast with our own with with the present day is quite striking. Um, they weren't like super judgmental towards rank and file Americans. You know, they didn't call them deplorable. Well, obviously they were the deplorables. That's who these people were. Right. They were the very bottom of society. And, the, you know, they, they, they sort of, um, there's a famous historian of populism, a guy called Lawrence Goodwin. He's dead now, but he wrote a great book on the subject back in the 70s. And he spent the, uh, some years of his life writing articles about how you build a mass movement like populism or like the civil rights movement or like uh, the labor movement in the 30s. And he said, one of the things you have to do is practice ideological patience. What is that I, love, I love that term. He made it up. And what it means is the people that you're working with don't have PhDs. They didn't go to Harvard. They don't have the vocabulary. They don't know what they're supposed to say. They have good instincts. They know what right and wrong are. They know when they're getting ripped off. Right. But no, they're not up to speed with the jargon. And so you as the organizer, as the guy who's trying to put this together, trying to develop the mass movement, have to practice ideological patience with these people. You have to allow for them to be, uh, you know, for all sorts of variations. With these, with ordinary, when when you're working with ordinary Americans, but today you look at the Democratic Party and the and the sort of liberal movement today. I'm not talking about Occupy here. I'm talking about right now, and the emphasis is on purging, canceling, blacklisting, kicking people out. You know who's the most righteous of them all? It's always you know somebody on right. It's, one person who's more righteous than everybody else. And that's precisely the opposite of the way these people worked. So it's a belief in more democracy, that the solution to all our ills is more inclusiveness. Everybody gets to vote. Yes. And so you don't purge voter rolls. You don't cancel people. No, you did. They did the opposite. It was... It was the the idea of populism was, I mean, so it was an economic program. It was first and foremost economic reform. Go after the banks, go after the railroads, uh, get us off the gold standard, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's the 1890s. It's a time of extraordinary concentration of wealth, just like today, a time of extraordinary monopoly power, just like today, and a time of incredible political corruption, just in your face, you know, with bosses, political bosses in D.C. boasting about it, you know. And uh, and so they said, well, you can't solve the economic problem without solving the corruption problem. And the way you solve the corruption problem is you take it on from the bottom up. You, um, you the direct election of before when the populace came on the scene, senators were chosen by state legislatures and state legislatures were it was well known at the time were very easy to bribe. So they would you know put the Vanderbilts had their personal attorney elected to the u.s senate you know stuff like that so they wanted to change that they got that by the way right. they wanted the um the secret ballot back in those days your ballot was a big you know 
piece of colored paper that said Republican <laughs> in big letters, you know, they were like, no, you got to have the secret ballot. They wanted votes for women and uh, income the way tax. They were, the income tax, that's right. But they also, the, very interestingly, the way they were killed in the South, populism. Well, was, before you get to that, let, let, uh, yeah, let's, yeah. Let, if you don't mind. No, no. Antitrust, the Sherman Antitrust Act, Teddy Roosevelt was sort of a popular. Well, that was later. He didn't didn't like them. (laughs) But he he adopted the program. I would assume either did Woodrow Woodrow Wilson like I I don't think so. But they they adopted their program. This is the fascinating thing. So this party died out by 1897. They were pretty much gone as a force. But their program lived on and was adopted almost across the board. Through what you write, fusion. Yeah, and, and through and through the efforts of people like Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, and, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt, who eventually took us off the gold standard. Uh, Williams Jenning, William Jennings Bryan, who's kind of lost to history, kind of remembered as a fool because of... A crank, kind of, because of the, his role in the, in the, uh, the Scopes trial. Yeah. Which is really, it's, it's a sad ending for a man who was a, in my opinion, a really great uh, leader, in some ways a really great American. Is that why you write the populist movement was immune to the culture wars, except when William Jennings Bryan got stuck in the evolution creation? Later on, yeah. That, well, they, they, they tried to stay out of the culture wars. Specifically because of that. They, they, knew, they knew it would break their movement apart. And uh, the the preeminent culture war issue of the 1890s was prohibition. So I'm I'm from Kansas. Kansas had already enacted prohibition by that time. And uh, the, you know, the populace just said nothing about it because they knew that it would split their electorate in half. And, uh, you know, Brian was a teetotaler, but I don't think he made a big a big fuss about it when he was running for president. You know, he was it was all about the gold standard that year. Right. But. You By the know, way, I want to. You get, in your book, which everybody should buy. The people know a brief history of anti-populism. I want to thank you because I never understood Williams Jennings, William Jennings Bryan, something about being crucified on a cross of gold. Is that what he said? You shall not. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon this cross of gold. Yes. And he meant the gold standard. I never, you're, I'm ashamed to tell you this, until I read The People Know a Brief History of Anti-Populism, I didn't understand the, the silver versus the gold what that yeah. meant and, and it's, 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 it's fairly simple but it's, it's, it's hard to understand because uh, they wanted inflation in these days in those days for us inflation is a bad word it's this thing that happened in the 70s and it's really scary but we want it we have deflate it's similar now we do have a, a deflation it, they say well, they, to to they, in the or, 1890s, they had deflation and it was disastrous because what it means is you would borrow money and farmers are a debtor class today as they were then. You borrow money and you have to repay it uh, and it's worth a lot more and it's much more scarce by the time you go to repay it. And so if you're a debtor, you're in big trouble. And uh, the gold standard was deflationary. So it's great for bankers. But it's really, really bad for farmers and for everybody else who borrows sharecroppers. You know, uh, well, mortgages weren't there weren't a lot of mortgages around at the time. But that's anyhow, it's very bad for people like farmers. And I but never understood. Silver, silver was plentiful. So that silver was inflationary. So that's why they wanted that. And you're right. F- silver could grow with the population that the more immigrants. Right. The, the less gold there was to spread around. Yeah. So there was different. So the, the economy and the, and the size of the population were growing by leaps and bounds back then. This is the sort of, you know, the golden age of American capitalism. It's like expanding at this incredible rate. Can you believe people? They know that I'm on your show. Yeah, but they know. They're, they're, they're phoning me. But, but they know what my show is. That's why they're phoning you. They know. This is, Listen to that. Listen to that. I can't, I can't make them stop. Well, and it, so. Uh, the so the pe- population is growing, and, the, and but the supply of currency is not, and so this is the this is the problem, and so it's that's that's what causes the deflation. Because if if you're on a gold standard, the supply of money cannot grow. By the way, ironically, do you see that Trump has uh, nominated a woman to be on the Federal Reserve Board who supports returning to the gold standard? 
because we now have a fiat currency, which is what the we, populists want. Nixon one, gave us exactly. that. Exactly. In 1971, well, Roosevelt really, but Nixon is the one that f- fully put us on that. So uh, 90, it wasn't until 1971 that they got their way. And that's just a, what that means is a completely managed currency where the Federal Reserve or whoever you, you delegate uh, is completely in charge of how much money there is in circulation. And they thought that was obviously the way to go. And, and so it's funny, they got so, can I curse on your show? No. Okay. They got so much uh, trouble for that. So they, they, you know, they got, they got denounced so much for being against the gold standard. I mean, you've seen the cartoons mm-hmm. that, I, that I include in the book. They're hilarious. You know, right. I mean, they're so vicious. Uh, this, you know, the anti-populists of the day just, uh, you know, blasted these people. So for, what happened to the people, uh, the populist movement? It was absorbed by both the Republicans and the Democrats. They took a little from. Eventually, what they had a kind of Waterloo. They, so they did was, win, right? You write that they had. They won in a lot of places. Yeah. So in Kansas, they had two, uh, two different governors, a bunch of senators, a lot of members of Congress. And the same in Nebraska, the Dakotas. Idaho, Colorado, uh, in the South, they won in a couple of states, and they were growing by leaps and bounds. And this was uh, frightening to the sort of powers that be in America back then. But it didn't really, the alarm bells didn't really go off until the year 1896, when, you know, the country's in a terrible depression, and uh, they, the, the Democrats meet for their convention and choose William Jennings Bryan, who you mentioned earlier. This is the Democratic Party now one of the two traditional parties in this country. And about a month later, they, they do it on the strength of the cross of gold speech, which you referred to earlier. And about a month later, the populists meet in their convention and they say, well, you know, he's not with us on everything, but he's pretty good. And he talks like one of us. So we're going to endorse him also. And then the sort of upper class of this country establishment or whatever you want to call them went hysterical. They went crazy and they said you know we are facing the class war here it is it is uh, it is the french revolution at our doorstep and we've got to suppress it and they came together in this kind of extraordinary uh, unity campaign all the different capitalists and up until that time you know lots of them had been democrats and lots of the of them had been republicans but in 1896 they all rallied around the republican candidate william mckinley and you had the great capitalists the tycoons the bankers uh aligned with the newspapers of america i mean the newspapers despised brian in this extraordinary way as, as you see from the book you know the invective they hurled at him is just incredible and the clergy of the time hated him and of course academia all of the leading thinkers of the day uh despised him you know they were they were deep into the, these ideas like social darwinism you know and the economists of course loved the gold standard uh, they thought it had been handed down from time immemorial it is simply how you organize a civilization and to to strike at the gold standard is to strike at the the very foundations of our civilization you know who are these people they were saying and they all came together with the republicans to uh, to destroy the brian campaign and they built a kind of stereotype of brian uh, where it was, uh, you know, he was a fool. He was a paranoid. There was something mentally wrong with him. He was a puppet of these other characters. But above all, what Brian represented to them was this idea of the riffraff trying to boss, you know, society's rightful ruling class. The riffraff trying to, you know, uh, rise above their station and tell the rest of us how to run things. When obviously the people who run America are the people who should be running America. Right. And this was the, and they, they, they developed a word for it that didn't develop it. They came up with the word to describe Brianism, and the word was populism. That's what, because the populists had also endorsed him. And so they said, this is, the, you know, populism is the threat. Brian is a, you know, represents populism, and populism is coming to, you know, is the class war coming to America. And, and they, um, then it became a derogatory, is that when it became a derogatory term? Yes, and that's the dawning of anti-populism. Wow. 
This is in 1896, and they and they beat him. They beat him pretty badly. They outspent him <clears throat> 20 or 30 to one. We don't really know because they didn't keep, you know, they did keep records, but they didn't make those records public. But Brian had to, you know, all Brian had was his, he was a celebrity. You know, he was the man of the moment, this incredible orator. And he was 36, which is fortunate because I don't know how you could survive what he went through. And he traveled around the country by himself, carrying his own suitcases <laughs> on a train giving speeches. And that's all, that's all they did. That's how they ran for president. And the Republicans just pulled every trick in the book, every trick known to the 19th century mind. They could afford it. They had this unlimited campaign treasury to suppress, you know, to win the class war. So how did Pop? They won. They won. So and they they it's Rovian. And by the way, I think Carl Rove it studied. Is. He studied uh, McKinley and Hannah, right? Can you yeah. Read it? yeah, yeah. There it is. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I just I was going to play you a clip of Carl Rove speaking at one of your favorite places, the Aspen Institute, <laughs> and he was talking. And nobody corrected them about the two populist impulses in American democracy, the Republican populist impulse and the Democratic populist impulse. And you know that he knows that yeah, the Republican. He knows better. Yeah. He knows better. And nobody at the Aspen Institute could correct him. In What's the Matter with Kansas, you wrote that, I believe it was when Rove was orchestrating the 2004 defeat over Kerry. You write about the two strains of Republican populism that Rove knew to tap into. What are those two strains of Republican oh, populism? God, I, don't, I, I, I don't remember, but it's almost certainly one of them is going to be the culture wars. The culture and the war. Gonna, and the, oh, and then market this kind of this idea of the market as a perfect democracy. Is that what was, Hannah was using? McKinley's guy was uh, Hannah, right? Yes, Mark Hanna was the, the great strategist of 1896. And Rove modeled his career after Mark Hanna, right? Yeah, but th those ideas are much more recent. The idea of, the, of, a, of, of a market as a perfect democracy, uh, people in the 19th century would have laughed at that. Their, their idea was aristocracy. You know, the winner takes all, devil take the hindmost, you know, y'all can go to hell. And uh, but in the 1990s, you saw this and you saw it whenever there's a great bull market in the 20s and the 90s. You see this 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 uh, sort of crazy idea develop and take root that um, that markets are the friend of the common man. And, and you know, if we right. all just buy some stock. Do you remember those books? The Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that one? And then there was one called the, the Beardstown Ladies where the idea, the, the big the motif of the book is in the 90s was that ordinary grandma from a small town in Illinois could pick stocks better than the, than the, ma the hedge fund managers on Wall Street. And what happened? It turned out... I know, uh, it didn't, didn't work out. They, 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 no. they, the, the Beardstown ladies couldn't add. They, they published this book and they had these astronomical returns, but then they looked at the numbers but and they was, realized... It was, this, it was this, this groping for, you know, Wall Street groping to try to take over... Uh, the, the sort of populist uh, uh, images and stuff of the 1930s, the sort of Frank Capra, Norman Rockwell images of this, you know, uh, that, that traditionally belong to the left and try to swipe those and, and conquer them for themselves. And the Republicans are very, by the way, very good at this game. And Wall Street, I mean, advertise, advertising agencies, they're very good at this. It's just it's just. It's just the uh, the Democrats that can't ever figure out what's happening to them right. and why they keep getting played, you know? Watching Karl Rove talk about both, si both sides having a populist movement and both sides being legitimate, but he was saying the Republican side is more legitimate. Do you yeah, honestly believe... I, I, he has to be evil because he he's too much of... <laughs> He's too smart to believe that, right? He's just... I, do, I don't like to call anyone evil, but, uh, but I think he's mistaken. I'd say that. He, he says that a wealth tax would... He, he literally said... I wanted to play this clip for you, but I knew we didn't have a much, that much time. In the Aspen Institute, he says that the wealth tax would punish anybody with a 401k. They'd be taking 5% out of your... You know, if you have $300,000... In, yeah, in a 401k. I don't think so. Yeah, I've never heard or of a, a speculation tax, like tax 
is going to yeah. kill the little guy. And I'm going and, to- and oh my god, yeah. That's so that's pure. That's just what I call market populism. It's this breed of phony. It's this kind of phony way of trying to identify markets with, with the fate of of, of ordinary people. And it's a it's a complete reversal of the eighteen of the real definition of the word. I'm going to give you the ultimate example of it, and then and then we'll talk about something else hopefully. And that is the Tea Party movement being launched from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Commodity right. traders launching a populist movement. I love that because it's like th- there's no one in this world that the original populists hated more than commodity traders right. at the Chicago Merc, you know, and that's that's where they launched the Tea Party movement. from. That guy, Nick Santorelli, Santelli, Santelli was his name, yeah. was already being paid by some AstroTurf organization to get the uh the guys on the, on the commodities exchange to to start cheering Getting riled up yeah and and uh, and he's still oh my he, god so b- before you go and th- I, I hope you come back the the experts there there's no penalty in America for Karl Rove lying at the Aspen Institute there's no penalty for experts getting things wrong and you you write about this that that is right there's this weird um well, the, there's this, this lapse in accountability in a lot of circles. And that was, that was, so listen, liberal, that was one of the big questions. You know, I had been a real believer in Barack Obama in 2008. And again, I thought, hey, here we go. We're going to put, put everything in reverse, you know. And, and it didn't happen. And the, nobody got prosecuted or even got in trouble, really, for the financial crisis. There was no accountability for those people at the top, but there was lots of accountability for people at the bottom. You know, they lost their houses. Uh, if they if they lied on a mortgage statement, they went to jail. The FBI showed up on their doorstep. But the guys at, on the top and their, you know, these the extraordinary frauds that these people were running, uh, nothing ever happened to them. And Why that, do you have to bring up Kamala Harris and Steve Mnuchin? We're having a nice conversation. Come on now, be nice. What I, what, I, what, I, what I mean by this is that got me started. And I was like, what what the hell happened? You know, where is the accountability? And I and that's when I started doing all the research, uh, reading about the you know professional class and professionalism in America and all of these people at the sort of upper reaches of the meritocracy. And there is a suspension of accountability for these people. I mean, uh, look, I came out of academia, and one of the things you realize right away about certain kinds of academics is that they don't have to answer to people outside their discipline. The economics profession is the, is the, is the classic example. These are people who get it wrong. I'm, I'm losing you. Things that never Are you froze? No, I'm right. I'm right here. I can. Okay. I can. Uh, the economics profession. You know, these. Uh, it, it's. Uh, there's this, uh, uh, one of my favorite economists, a guy called Jamie Galbraith, calls it a, a brotherhood of error. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Glenn Hubbard from the Columbia. They're protected. Yeah, I remember that guy. But they're protected. They they can they screw up again and again and again and again. And there's no accountability for these guys. And the same with the Wall Street bankers. And once you start looking, you notice this uh, all over the place. I'll give you one other example, and then and then uh, and then we'll, I hope we, we I want to get back to populism. But Hillary's 2016 presidential campaign. Think about this for a second. It's run by the the, the putative the, the you know the best political consultants in America. The people with the most experience, the smartest. They went to Harvard. They're you know they're experts. You know, and they're running against a guy who's never run for office before. And his campaign manager, Steve Bannon, has never managed a campaign before. And Donald Trump is the most hated presidential candidate in the history of America. And they lose to this guy. Right. The great experts lose this guy. And what happens? Right. Well, they go to Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) To teach. Yeah. Yeah. Or they go, they go to Google or they go to Silicon Valley or they go to Wall Street or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. They get kicked upstairs. It's, it, is, it is the most extraordinary thing. And once you start researching this kind of elite failure, it's everywhere. And by the way, elite failure is, you know, we have these stupid debates in America now where it's all like, well, uh, you know, uh, populism is this real problem because it's when we stop trusting the establishment, when we stop trusting the elites. And we can't do that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know we can't do that. And, uh, 
every time I read these articles, and there are hundreds of them, and I, I, I quote some of them in here, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I skim the surface. They, uh, they don't even acknowledge the possibility of elite failure. That when you have a group that is closed off to accountability and that only listens to other members of the same profession, they're going to screw things up. The Vietnam War, the Iraq War, you know, the, uh, the, the subprime bubble, the financial crisis, the bailouts, on and on and on. The, uh, the um, opioid epidemic, that was professionals that did that, was writing those prescriptions, manufacturing. Right, right. Uh, you know, right. the Hillary campaign, the, the pandemic that we're in now, on and on and on, one failure after another. And it's as though this, this, this phenomenon that is like an iceberg, that is like a gigantic, you know, we can't even talk about it. It's, it doesn't really happen. The real problem is when people stop trusting experts. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have a whole academic discipline dedicated to that problem, to, to, like, to like studying, like, what the hell is wrong with people? Why, are they, why aren't they listening to us anymore? They, you can do, uh, there's panel discussions on it. You mentioned the Aspen Institute. I'm sure they do it there. They have panels on it at Davos. Populism, it's a real problem. And <laughs> well, you write about this over at Le Monde, about how, how we don't trust the doctors and yeah, like yeah. what's it's like what? that's a, it's a false choice so one side says uh you know i don't want to wear a mask because it's my personal liberty and, and another side you know here's my mask i wear one right the other side says no no you got to trust experts and i'm saying wait a second <laughs> there's this huge part of the question that you're not addressing which is the system you know, mm-hmm. the medical system in this country, you know, you can trust experts all you want. But the, I mean, look, the problem is if you just let experts run everything, they are going to run things in their own self-interest. Right. And there is no better evidence for that than what's happened with the medical system in this country. I mean, why don't we have a Canadian style system in America? It's been proposed many times because the the AMA, the American Medical Association, the Doctors Professional Association stopped us again and again and again over the years. Roosevelt proposed it, Truman proposed it, Johnson proposed it, and they were stopped again and again by the scientists, by the experts. And today the AMA is, they've, they've softened their stance, but now it's the hospital association and it's big pharma and it's people like this. You listen to experts and you don't consider the, the people you know, you're going to get screwed. This is just, it seems so obvious to me, and yet it is un, unsayable in our system today. So you, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about the populists having a patience. What is this, a patience? Ideological patience. Ideological. Yeah, if, if you're going to build a mass movement like populism or like the labor movement in the 30s, or like the civil rights movement. You look at um, John Lewis, who just died, was the head of an organization called SNCC, Students, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they would go into towns in the South, and the idea was not, look at us, we're these great leaders. The idea was, we're going to organize you, the people who live in this town, to get together and start putting pressure on the local politicians and going out and registering to vote and going up against the machine. It was about, as populism always is, it's about ordinary people challenging the machine. And if you want to build a movement of ordinary people, and I would say, you know, if you want to tackle the economic situation that we're in or the healthcare situation that we're in, you have to build an, a movement of ordinary people. If you want to do that, you have to have some patience and have some tolerance of, of human beings, you know, uh, that, that they aren't always geniuses, that they didn't go to Harvard like you did, that they, they don't know the, the, the correct jargon and they're going to get things wrong. And the, it, it's a slow, painstaking, extremely difficult process, but it has been done in our history several times. And maybe the it's necessary for us to develop an allergy to urgency that if you have technocrats who graduate from the top schools, it's their responsibility to find emergencies, urgencies. This men ha- of crisis. Yes, men, of, men crisis. of crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and patience, if you, if you have a holistic approach and you say, all right, there is a problem, let's let's have hearings let's have transparency let's have debate but no we have to go to war the president should be allowed to go to war for 60 days and then we decide whether (laughs) or not we should breathe yes yeah you're exactly right uh, it's it's uh, how are you on time by the way can you spare time 
Hell yes. Okay, so let me ask the animals in the chat room if they <laughs> if they'd like to ruin the proceedings by asking uh, an expert who knows better than you, Thomas Frank. He's a PhD. He yeah, knows better. I, I never. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I brought that up. I'm sorry. I mentioned that. I never. I never. I never bring that up. All I will say about populism is that I, I I used to study it when I was a young man, and so that's. I mean, you wonder how I happened to to know all this stuff and write this book. It was my when I started graduate school. This was going to be my subject, mm-hmm. and I changed my mind somewhere, but. Uh, I, I, I did all the research and it was just in the in the back of my mind somewhere. This is, you know, so I had to find a use for it. Yes, but uh, we do have some people who uh, we're going to let the uh, the masses join in. But but first, you're a great writer. You, you write for people like me and That's you make nice me. Of you to say no, I mean that. And so all of a sudden, I, I think I'm actually smarter than I than I am, which it's a great compliment. You, you, you write. I, I know. And I, and I, and it's, that's very nice of you. And um, I'm actually, I mean, that's one of the things I work the hardest on is, I mean, to take this. It's not uh, exclusionary. You have this knowledge right. and you genuinely are writing to share it, not to show off how smart you are or make the listener or the reader feel so stupid. They just believe you because and that's what experts do that's the whole yes, purpose that's, right. of, that's the, the point of, of their of their jargon of scholarly jargon or in the case of economics math they you know or, or well political science now does that too they discovered this sort of so ec- economics used to be in the 40s and 50s was written in plain english like every other academic did. well not plain english but in english and they discovered that that wasn't um exclusionary enough and so they came up with this great idea let's do everything with equations Let's start all our all our conversations, all our debates will be about equations. And that way, people like you and me are completely outside. We can't even read the crap. And political science is figuring that out. It's now. why Arthur Laffle can get a, a, a presidential medal of freedom, even though there's <laughs> incontrovertible evidence that supply side economics doesn't yeah, work. Stephen Moore right. can still write editorials for whomever. Even it does because. <laughs> Let's There's go. no accountability. There's no accountability. Arthur, Arthur Laffer. I mean, this is the guy that, that came to Kansas and uh, and engineered the uh, the. Uh, they the admitted they were wrong. Yeah, the brownback yeah, tax cut. Kansas woke up. Kansas woke up. Yeah. Kansas was yeah. a laboratory of democracy, and the republic didn't the Republicans you know, wake they up? They screwed it up so badly. They screwed it up so badly, and it's funny because Brownback was a classic uh, fake populist in the the culture wars mode, you know, and then he becomes governor. And what does he do? It's always, it's always the, it's always the shell game. You know, he's the great, when he was in the U S Senate, he was the homophobe, the the paramount culture warrior of the 1990s. And then he becomes governor of Kansas. And and all he wants to do is cut taxes. He was, I I think anybody whose last name is Brownback should not be running on a campaign (laughs) against the gay community, and then they sent him to the Vatican. Didn't he become like the yeah, religious? I believe it's something like re- that. A religion. He's in the State Department yeah. now. I'm not sure what he does. But your Republican Party in Kansas, they did admit they were wrong about taxes, didn't they? Uh, so I don't follow um, their adventures anymore, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I don't. I don't know if they have ever admitted it, but they they got they got beat pretty bad uh, a couple of years ago. Okay, uh, and they lost a the governor. Well, I believe in the people. Let's call on a good, every time this American, I call on this American, he's bright, he's smart, he's articulate, he's well-read, he's the salt of the earth, a great American. Mr. Hutchinson, go ahead. Oh, hi, David. Thanks for calling me an American. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I forgot. You're in Great Britain. Okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, And and I I wanted to just say, great to hear uh, Dr. Frank on. And I also wanted to say that he also calls us savages. Um, I stopped. I stopped. You have. You you have. You have. I was, um, excuse me. Hang on for one second, Mr. Hutchinson. You know, I like an adversarial relationship with my audience. I just feel like, why not? It's funny. They're smart. Why suck up to them? Uh, so I started calling them savages. And then somebody wrote to me and said, that's imperialistic. That's what the, the British called the Africans. It's a bad word. And you know what I did, Dr. Frank? I, it, it's really unbelievable what I did. I said, oh, I learned something. 
I'm going to stop doing that. I, I'm nice so, of you. Yeah, it's a very simple thing to do. I didn't feel threatened. I, I didn't go, my God, the language, the cancel. I just went, oh, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. I didn't know any better. Thank you. Imagine that. Go ahead. Go, go ahead, Mr. Hutchinson. Oh, great. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question because the, the right wing across the world is very good at militizing um, populism. So they've, they've been excellent, whether you take Reaganism, anything that they do, they, they have a system and they turn it for the time. Uh, how does the left wing uh, militize that same thing without getting caught into little eddies of, um, of despair as such? How do we do that? Thank you. I, that last part, idiots of despair, is that what you said? <laughs> is that what you said? That, that's my accent. Uh, no, okay. eddies. Oh. Eddies like little water sort oh, of eddies, things. Yeah, without getting caught in yeah. eddies of despair. I get it. Okay. So, look, uh, yes, it's, you, you, you point out Reagan. Uh, one of the sort of I, – I take it you haven't got to the Reagan part of the book, Mr. David Feldman. Uh, no. It's towards the end. Yeah. But so there, there was all of these uh, uh, writers for uh, publications like the Wall Street Journal that described Reagan as a populist back in the, <laughs> in the 1980s. Right. And Reagan himself loved to go around and say things like, uh, you know, I don't I don't like to hang around with these guys in suits. You know, the, the best people that I meet are the ones with calluses on their hands, you know, I, right. I mean, and then goes and cuts the taxes of, and, you know, does this engineers the upward redistribution of wealth, the deregulation, the destruction of organized labor, et cetera. Uh, the, the thing is that populism is naturally, you know, by its nature and also by its historic, you know, uh, reality, a phenomenon of the left in this country. You know, the populist movement, the farmers movement, the labor movement, the civil rights movement. These are the things that we look back at. The, the right wing version of it is a fraud and a phony. And it always will be. And you can easily puncture it once you, you, know, you know, once you see what they're doing, you can easily see through it. The, uh, I, so I, it's not a, you know, people ask me, how can the left retake populism? It's like perfectly natural for the left to be populist. The problem is that you've got a, a Democratic Party here in this country. And, I, and by the way, left parties all around the world have been following the Democratic Party's uh, lead on this. A Democratic Party in this country that is that has deliberately turned its back on its populist past and deliberately severed its links with, you know, the organizations of working people, meaning in this country, uh, labor unions, and has made itself instead into something very different. And they are open about this, made itself into a vehicle of the professional managerial class. And they, they don't use that term. They use they have their own euphemisms for it. They say things like the learning class. You know, but they 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 deliberately undertook this shift from the 70s up to the 1990s. And that's who they are today. And they have uh, this probably the the craziest thing I discovered when I was writing this book is the continuity in anti-populist language from the 1890s to today. Only it's changed size. In the 1890s, the, the language denouncing Brian and, you know, uh, all that stuff was on the right. What we would think of today as the extreme right. These were incredible racists, uh, you know, Wall Street types, you know, the owners of America, people who believed in, in, in oligarchy and in aristocracy. That's who denounced populism. And today it's the center left. You know, it's Democrats. It's it's the sort of uh, bien pensant. There's a there's a fancy. What does that mean? Word for you. That means right thinking, right thinking academics uh, uh, who denounce populism. It's it's it, that's who it is now, and uh, that's just just it, it's we're in the the most incredible upside down situation. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, obviously, the what has to happen is that the Democratic Party has to be reformed, and in other circumstances, I would say we're well, that we're at the perfect moment for it. I mean, you know, we've come out of we came out of a financial crisis and now we're in a health care crisis. And, you know, the, the people are so angry in this country. I'm really you know, you make me really angry. I mean, listen, liberal makes me really angry. If I had Nancy Pelosi on the show, I would ask her questions that she, I mean, she won't answer these questions. You, you know, they, they nobody but holds. She's a, nice, she's a nice person. I know, I know. <laughs> Doug, who you know, by the way, one of Doug has a question in the Q and A, and you're here because of Doug. He sent me your piece in Le Monde, 
Uh, awesome. And I went, oh my God, I'll try to get Thomas. Do you, you notice a, a kind of a curious thing that where it was published? It's in a French newspaper. Yeah. Isn't that a little odd? <laughs> yeah. I'm getting angry. He writes, could you talk about your piece called It's the Healthcare System, Stupid? Yeah, and how absolutely. can, do it, answer it this way. How could Joe Biden say he would veto Medicare for all? I don't, that utterly baffles me that he said that. I, I can't believe he means it. I just can't believe it. That's what the Democratic Party used to stand for. That was Harry Truman's great, you know, the failed crusade of 1948. That's how he won. Well, it doesn't matter. Right. What I did in the article was uh, when the pandemic started, I was like everybody else. I was I was chagrined. I was I stayed in, in my house for a whole month and I was. You know, I t just turned in my book about, it's funny, I finished this book about populism in February, turned it in. I was like, let's go party. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. done. You know, I've worked for two years and I'm done. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, you got to stay in your house now for the indefinite future. And so I was pretty uh, unhappy. And uh, there are all of these stories. There's a whole um sort of strain of journalism in this country of stories denouncing populism and blaming it for the coronavirus and blaming saying you know countries with populist leaders you've seen these stories they're all right. over the place and and that of course also made me really unhappy and so I, start, I i flipped the question on its head and i said how about we ask this question in a different way what would a populist healthcare system look like and so, as I always do, how do you find the answer to that? Well, you, you do historical research. And I started digging around. There's all of these histories of the medical profession. And I opened some of these up and right away found uh, ex right away found examples of populist minded people in places like Oklahoma uh, coming up with populist healthcare systems on behalf of the farmers union. There's a famous one in the, in the 1920s, the farmers union of Oklahoma built a system where any farm family could pay a subscription every year, not very much money and get all the healthcare they could possibly need. And they had a nice modern brand new hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Who opposed that? The American Medical Association, the mm -hmm. scientists, the ones we're always advised to listen to very carefully, they tried to crush this experiment and they tried to crush every similar experiment. And they, they did, in fact, crush Harry Truman's effort and they tried to kill Medicare when they proposed it in America. And the most interesting example, now you tell me if you want me to shut up. No, are you going? No. So this one, this one kind of blew my mind uh, because it's all these things I didn't know. I, it would have been in the book if I had known it when I was writing the book. But populism, when it died out in America, but it lived on in Canada, in the Plains provinces. And they kept going with these kind of provincial farmer labor parties. And uh, one of them that was founded as a populist party, it was called the uh, Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And it was in the province of Saskatchewan, finally came to power in the 40s. Okay, these are it's like American populism and they finally come to power in the 40s and they, they stay in power. They keep getting reelected because, you know, the answer to this, David, people like populism. Yeah, you know, the real thing. It's, it's actually really popular, you know. Anyhow, so they keep getting reelected and eventually they propose universal health care for everyone in Saskatchewan. They, and they won re-election on this in the year 1960. They roll out their plan. They're ready to go in New Year's 1962. And what happens? The doctors of Saskatchewan go on strike against the, the government. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Ayn Rand moment. It's the strike of the 1%, and they're going to bring the working class to its knees. You know, mm -hmm. these farmers and workers who vote for these politicians, they're going to destroy these, these uh, you know, these, these uppity riffraff, right? And instead, they lose. And within five years, every province in Canada has this as like, you know, this is a great system. They all have it. And today, Canada has the single payer system, which is this weird backdoor uh, 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 gift of populism of the right. American movement from the 1890s. And so it's instead of being this war of populism on science, which is what all the headlines say, and they're talking about Trump, of course, the idiot or Jair Bolsonaro or, what, you know, whatever fool they've decided to call a populist. The real story is science's war on populism. Right, right. 
anyhow. Yeah, no, no, it's great. And Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather, Tommy. That's right. uh, Tommy Douglas. That's is, the guy. Okay. That is the guy. By the way, just today, a guy sent me uh, a copy of Franklin Roosevelt's second inaugural address, and he talks about science in it. And, you know, you hear Nancy Pelosi say, we got to listen to the scientists. you got to obey the scientists. And again, you know, every time I hear this, it's like, yes, I understand. Hitler listened to our scientists. He did. The eugenicists. You can't can't just let scientists make the decisions. Right. The decisions have to be up to us. Right. They have to be up to the public. MK Ultra. Anyhow, here's here's what Roosevelt said. he, He talks about how we need to have government. You know, you can't just have a civilization where government, you know, meaning the people just lets everything go. And he said, without that, we had been unable to create those moral controls over the services of science, which are necessary to make science a useful servant instead of a ruthless master of mankind. Wow. That's that's exactly the story I've been trying to tell. And for, of course, Roosevelt had it, you know, in 1937. Of course he did. How, how the Democrats twisted the enlightenment yeah they've got that completely upside down there are only like 200 medical schools in america and it's really hard to become a doctor yeah make it easier to truman wanted to truman wanted to vastly expand the number of medical schools i mean all he wanted to do all these things and and uh, you ask yourself why would doctors oppose this well obviously it would dilute their earning power it would dilute their monopoly control every profession I don't want to get into this, but professions have monopoly control over their fields. That's the definition of it. Control over the jargon. They get to write the prescriptions. They get to design the buildings. They are licensed by the state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they have incredible power. And, um, you know, that's that that can't just that can't be the basis for a left wing political party. It just can't. Right. But today it is. We have to get it. Uh, we have Professor Marianne. I'm not going to give you her last name because. Uh, all I can tell you is she's a physics professor. And uh-oh, this, uh-oh. This is, I've gone too far. She writes for question for Mr. Frank, are Biden and Harris sociopaths? And <laughs> that's a are they? Come on. You, <laughs> I, I think I think alone among the inhabitants of the national capital, I have never met Joe Biden. <laughs> so I would not I would not want to form an opinion on that. Can I, I you know, Biden is um, has one of the worst voting records uh, as a U.S. senator of any Democrat I know of, you know, who's still around. And. And yet every now and then he says things that I that I agree with. I mean, there's a reason that that Bernie likes him. I, I actually I don't know what that reason is, but there maybe <laughs> Bernie's is so- there is a reason that Bernie likes him and Bernie trusts him mm-hmm. and, and intrigued me that when I found that out. And I actually went and wrote an article about Biden wonder asking that question. Why do you know, this is a guy with a, a really dreadful, you know, a lot of things to answer for. Why do people that I admire and respect like him? And I, I did come up with an answer, by the way. And what is it? <laughs> well, every now and then, if you listen to his rhetoric, if you listen to his speeches and stuff, I mean, 99% of it is crap. <laughs> but every now and then, he will say something that's quite profound. And I was, I was reading his interview with the New York Times editorial board, you know, where they remember when they endorsed Amy Klobuchar? Do you remember that? And but somebody they, else, and Elizabeth and, uh, Warren. Yeah. yeah. And they... But they interviewed all the candidates, including Biden. And he gives this very long interview with them. It's like 10,000 words when you read it on the page. And I read the whole thing. And it's, it's extremely boring. And he's evasive and all the rest of it. And then they get to the end of it. And he describes, and you'll like this, he describes being approached in 2016 by a Hillary Clinton operative. You know, he's out giving speeches on her behalf and uh, an operative comes up to him and says, you know, Biden, Joe, Mr. Vice President, you've got to start distinguishing between progressive values and working class values. And Biden is like, what do you mean? Biden gets all upset. And he says, I've never found there to be any difference between the two. And then he goes on a tear uh, uh, and, start, you know, turns to the New York Times editorial board and says, basically the thesis of Listen Liberal, he says, you know, our party has become a party of people like you guys, you know, all the smart people. But I'm here to tell you that working class people are capable of being just as progressive as you, if not more so you just have to speak to them in the right way and i thought that was a 
kind of a wonderful moment when Biden did that. Now, uh, admittedly, this is 1% of a very long conversation and you have to dig to find it. But he does say these things every now and then. And so there is this kind of glimmer I guess, of hope. Uh, I, God, but I, I, I swore after Obama that I would give up on that. Let me ask you, a, let me, we'll, I'm going to let you go. Two questions. Will you please come back? I, this is. Of course I will. What else you. am I going to do in this pandemic? I, <laughs> you know, seriously, I, I'm like, I refinished furniture. I, you know, I, 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 I had to kill ants in the kitchen this morning. You know, I treat my guests the way the Democratic Party treats the AFL-CIO. <laughs> exactly. Where are you gonna, yes. What else do you have to do? Yeah. <laughs> Who else are you going to talk to? All right, that's the first question. Let me ask you a really difficult question. This is going right. to be really difficult. I know you hate Donald Trump. I know you think he's the worst president. You know, then even worse than Jefferson Davis, the worst president this country's ever had. <laughs> but the way he treats authority figures in the administrative state, when you're not being interviewed, when you're alone, it makes you happy, doesn't it? The way he talks to the CIA. Oh, I was about to say, I, I, I like that he I like that he ha, he has no respect for the CIA and the FBI <laughs> and our State Department. Do yeah. we really need kinda, a State Department? Like Do we yeah. need a State Department? Well, I mean, ultimately, yeah, you do, do we? but, but uh, uh, maybe not in its present configuration. But I, I do find that kind of, let's say I find it amusing. Uh, it, you know, it makes me chuckle. But then I think about the day that, that Trump is able to, that, that, that Trump figures out he can fire everyone and replace him with his own people. <laughs> and, you know, he hasn't, he's been in office for four years now and he hasn't figured that out. But uh, the day he does, then, then the, you know, the, the, the chuckles will cease. <laughs> but do you get some delight in all these experts who say there are guardrails and norms in place and he can't get away with this? And well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the, 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 it's not, it doesn't amuse me, but it is, um, it's, it's something that I used to talk about when Obama was president. In the, the last two years of Obama's administration, you remember he basically did almost nothing. Do you remember this? And I was writing for Salon at the time. And, uh, and, and my, my friends and I said, well, let's, you know, let's just come up with a list of things that he could do that he doesn't need Congress to do. And I called like all of these different experts and people that know what they're talking about and, and got a long list mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, went and, and, and published this story. These are all the things that Barack Obama could do without Congress. One of them right. I remember was, um, an obvious one was antitrust. You know, he, the laws are on the books. All he has to do is call Eric Holder into his office and say, go out and enforce these laws. Right. Another one was like, let's go prosecute some fraud on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that fraud's against the law. You know, we, nobody's stopping me from doing it. He could do it. Right. You know, another one was like, go after universities for their high tuition rates. You've got all the power in the world over these guys, the Department of Education. And he didn't do any of those things. And I remember being so annoyed as he, in his final years in office, when the sort of pundit bureau of this country, you know, the opinion cartel of this country, they would write, you know, how they always write the same thing. Everybody's always working on the same story, you know, with these guys. And the story was always, you know, look, uh, you, you want him to work magic. He can't do that. He's not a superhero. Or my favorite one was there's one of these guys at like the New York Times or somewhere said, look, the presidency is, is an office. It doesn't have a lot of power. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot he can do. Right. And, and it's, uh, I look at Trump now and <laughs> right. oh my God, the guy is going to do away with the payroll tax all by himself. Right. It's like, uh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I promise you I wouldn't gush, but I, I, you are the best. You really are, uh, because you went through a transformation, which is a whole other story. You, you know, your ability to see how you were brainwashed, but you really study this stuff and you make it clear for people like me. And there is this unifying theory that can explain away a lot of people can explain people's behavior and then explain away them and you know i used to have a friend named jimmy door he has a radio show oh, i know that guy yeah. well he stopped talking to me we we were you know we i have a podcast because of jimmy i'm on the same radio station as jimmy and he and i had this big blowout 
and he became very successful. And I thought, let me see what Jimmy's up to. He hates me. He hates me. And, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and I and he said the book that changed his life was Listen Liberal. It changed his life, and I thought, out of respect for Jimmy, I'm going to read. That's high praise. That's high praise. And I so I read Listen. Out of respect for Jimmy, I read Listen Liberal, and I as I'm reading it, I thought, well, of course he hates me. Now I understand. I hate me <laughs> because I'm oh, one of those. Come on now. Come no, on I'm now. one of those d bags who go. You know, it's complicated. I was what I. I've always had leftist impulses. I Bernie all the way, but you know, when you become a parent, you you start to say things like, "It's complicated." You know, I'm a little older than you. It's nice. You're, you know, you're 25. That's it. You're, you're thinking the way you should be when you're 25. But when you get to be my and reading, listen, liberal, I, I, I saw a side of me that I didn't like. And listen, liberal is a masterpiece. It really is. It it's is really a masterpiece. Ni- it's nice of you to say and, that. And, and the people know a brief history of anti-populism. I'm. I'm not finished with it, but you, you're the best. Gonna, you really are the best. It's so nice of you to say that. Can I just th- throw out one more thing? Yes, your, please. Your, yes. Your listeners and viewers who are who want to get a taste of it. Uh, there was a good excerpt in, in Harper's Magazine, and I've got all the illustrations plus quite a few others on my website, tcfrank.com. Yes. And uh, the, all these political cartoons from the 1890s that I was able to, to dig up, and they are... Um, they're funny, but they're so incredibly vicious. But you just you take a look at them and you'll get the thesis, the argument of the book uh, right away that this 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 hatred of of mass movements of working people that was on the right, on the extreme right, has weirdly in our own time migrated to the center left. It's strange on the right. Well, from the right. From the right to the center left. This is like the, the people who hated William Jennings Bryan in the 1890s were on the what we would consider today the far right. They mm-hmm. were they didn't think that way. They thought they were just, you know, they, they owned this place. Right. <laughs> but but that their attitudes towards him are the Democratic Party's attitudes towards you and me today. Right. Right. And you'll see this. It, it's well, you'll see. It's, it's to be continued. Everybody. Go by the people know a brief history of anti-populism. Trust me, if you haven't read Listen Liberal, my if you wanna if you think you dislike me, <laughs> pick up Listen Liberal. I promise you, you'll 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 know. Uh, no, it's you're just the best. Thank you. Can you stay on the line for one second, Thomas? Sure, Thank sure, you. sure. I can. Yeah. Thank you.